morning, church. Echo, echo. It's my favorite time of the year. Teach us in her ways to go. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. Today we celebrate the advent of hope as our Savior's coming was promised through the prophets long ago. Luke 1 verse 26 through 33 reads, In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor, favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. This is God's word. Amen. All right, if you could stand one more time for the reading of God's word. Our scripture this morning is found in Isaiah chapter 7, and it's verses 13 to 17. It says, Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David, is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. 
the Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father, a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. This is God's word. You may be seated. Dear God, we pray this morning as you um, speak to us that we would hear your word. Lord God, fill Pastor Joe with your Holy Spirit. I pray that we would leave here changed because of you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Thank you, Mark and everyone else. Mike, I'm going to leave the slides up to you because that thing distracts me. Um, in case you hadn't heard, if you've gotten some emails, you know that Pastor Kyle is not here because he's been tested positive with COVID and is sequestered. So uh, we pray for him and, um, and, and let, let's just open quickly with a prayer for Kyle and his family. Father, we do um, lift up Kyle and, and, and pray that uh, you are using this time in his life to do your will and to show him special things. We thank you for his family and their creativity to, to have Thanksgiving outside. What a wonderful, and God, you took care of the weather. You are so wonderful. Um, and we just pray for, for health and safety and wisdom and all these things as we live through these crazy days. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> So today, as you've seen with Milena coming up and lighting the candle and reading that uh, wonderful introductory story as the angels declared to Mary what was about to happen, that this is the first Sunday of Advent. The theme of this first week is hope, or sometimes it's called promise. And the reading um, that we read from Isaiah 7 is very common uh, uh, reading for this time, as well as um, Isaiah 9, a few verses there, which are commonly read. Um, I have a slide for that, but we're going to go... I'll read, read the text, but the text is kind of small, as you can see. But this will sound familiar to you. The people in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So these are some of the wonderful background texts that we enter into the Christmas season and and they they sound they're familiar they sound lovely um, and what could what could possibly put a mark against against these wonderful um, messages but I have to warn you that Isaiah 7 14 which we read initially uh, is a complicated verse, and it has some controversy behind it. And as they say, fools rush in where angels fear to dread, tread. So I'm going to dive right in and tell you about the controversy 
and hopefully explain how the church, the Christendom, has dealt with it in the past. And so you want to pay attention, because if you fall asleep, you'll leave with the controversy and not the answer. And maybe an answer, maybe just a good Christmassy application. Um, Isaiah 7.14 is one of those verses that if you undertake to do slightly serious Bible study, by that I mean just checking cross-references. When a book in the Bible refers to another book, particularly uh, prophecy, it's kind of fun to go back and read what it says. And if you do that, this is one of the first places that you would probably read in the Bible and say, like the little boy in the children's story of the emperor's clothes, I don't get it. I don't see it. How does this work? How can this possibly be a prophecy? If you're honest and you've got integrity in your study, you have to ask those kind of questions. If you don't, when someone asks you the question, how do you answer? So we're going to encourage you to, to take that kind of mindset when you read the Bible. Ask questions. Check those cross-references. Believe me, God can handle it. He can handle any questions that you have. But I want to cover, uh, I want to explain to you the situation that is being referred to here in this verse in Isaiah. If we could move on to slide three. The situation that Isaiah is writing about, see that nice, long Star Wars kind of story, is in his mind not about a future savior. What Isaiah is writing about is the elimination of a threat against Judah. And Isaiah's intention, don't try to read that, it's great, I made it just look silly for you. Isaiah's intention is to define a period of time within which God will intervene on Judah's behalf. And he is really not thinking about a particular woman or a particular child. And yet we get to the Gospel of Matthew, and he writes in chapter 1, verse 22, all this, the story of Jesus, took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. So if you look at that slide up there, the map shows you what Isaiah is talking about. Down there in that green area, that's Judah. And that whole pink area is Israel. Those are the tribes of Israel that kind of didn't hold, hold to the Jewish practices. They were kind of unfaithful. Um, and above that, you can see in the white area is in large letters, Aram, or Aram, Aram. Um, and, and the story starts with the king of Israel and the king of Aram making an alliance to, to go and overtake Judah. So that's the threat. That's the condition. And now I'm going to read you that. Star Wars text. The year is 734, and Rezin, king of Aram, in that minor kingdom up in the northeast, and Pekah, king of Israel, have made an alliance to attack 
Judah. <clears throat> then you also saw the name Ephraim mentioned in our earlier reading. That's because Ephraim was the largest of the other tribes that made up what is now called Israel. Now Ahaz, who was the king in Judah, the, the green area, he was terrified. So God sends Isaiah the prophet to Ahaz with a message. And the message is this. Within 65 years, both of these kings in the north and their kingdoms won't even exist. Their lands will be laid waste, is what Isaiah says. So stay put, Ahaz, and trust God. Oh, and by the way, ask for any sign you want as proof. That's the message that Isaiah gives to Ahaz. Now, Ahaz refuses to ask for a sign, which is disobedient and kind of prideful. And that's why we get to that verse which you read where Isaiah is expressing, he says to, to Ahaz, will you try the patience of God? That's why it starts that way. So Isaiah rebukes Ahaz and gives him the sign anyway, which is this. In about three years, the alliance of these two kings will be broken. That's not the words that we get in the Bible, but that's what it meant. Three years is roughly the time it would take for a currently unmarried woman to get married, have a baby, and for the baby to grow to an age roughly of starting to know right from wrong. And if you go to the next slide, there it is. That's the timeline. That's exactly what I just said, so you don't even have to read it. But that's, that's what Isaiah was doing. He was setting a timeline. There is no historical record of any particular marriage or any particular child being born or a child being named Emmanuel in the year 732 or 733 BC. But in that year, the Assyrians destroyed Damascus, killed Rezin, and 10 years after that, Israel is conquered by the Assyrians, all within 12 years of Isaiah's original prophecy. So that's what Isaiah was talking about. And then Matthew says, this is to fulfill the prophecy that a virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. Do you see the controversy? Is there a problem here? Can any saying, any string of words be taken out of the Old Testament? Something was written down hundreds of years before and applied to some new situation and be called a prophecy? Even though the context is very different and the meaning when it was written is very different from the meaning they're trying to apply to it later? That was the controversy, and a lot of people over centuries have debated it. How do we handle these kind of prophecies, these kind of sayings? There are three clues that you can kind of use to help understand these kind of situations, but they don't solve every problem. 
The first one in this case is that there's extra detail in the original statement that really doesn't have anything to do with the original problem. Um, what does the child's name have anything to do with the timeline that Isaiah is trying to lay out? Really nothing. Although in Isaiah's mind, maybe he was saying, I'm trying to tell Judah, I'm trying to tell uh, Ahaz that to trust God, God is in control. And so maybe I'll just throw in the name of a kid that means God with us to remind him. You know, you could conceive of that. The other word, the other thing to think about is ambiguous words. The word young woman does not necessarily mean virgin. But culturally, it probably did. A young woman that, that this word refers to is someone living in a society where, excuse my English, premarital sex was forbidden and strictly adhered to, you know, avoided. And they had ways to tell. So a woman, a young woman who was not married was most likely a virgin. And that, the meaning of those words gets kind of lost because it was originally written in Hebrew and now Matthew, when he re recites it, is, is reading and writing in Greek. So the meaning of the words gets a little bit lost. So that's a, that's a possible clue. The other one is the person who's speaking. This is Isaiah. This is the person appointed by God as the prophet for Israel, which doesn't always solve things because he also used very wicked people sometimes to, to put voice to prophecy. But those are clues. But this, this controversy over how do we treat this kind of, this seemingly mismatch between the claim of prophecy and the original statement that's been discussed for centuries and it reoccurs every once in a while because people forget history and they forget to read the writings of older older people and so it comes up and I unearthed this article written in the early 1900s where when Think about it, it's the Industrial Revolution, the age of reason, everyone's thinking very natural uh, kind of things. And so the question of, of how do you interpret prophecy? How do we get, you know, we, we wanna trust the mind. The mind of man is the definition of all things right, right? Reason. Um, so the issue came up in the early 1900s. And how do you like this for a catchy title of an article? The Reformation Principle of Exegesis and the Interpretation of Prophecy by um, Professor Fullerton of Oberlin Theological Seminary. And his, he, this is an article, it's over 500 pages long, we would call it a book. <laughs> but in the, after presenting all the historical points of view and, and everything, he comes to the end and restates the conclusion, and this is very important, that scripture is only to be interpreted by scripture. And in support of that, he quotes, and that's a quote written there by Quenstedt, a 17th century theologian, um, who wrote this. The certain and infallible interpretation of scripture can be gained from no other source than from Scripture itself. For Scripture, or rather the Holy Spirit speaking 
in and through scripture is its own legitimate and absolute interpreter. If you want to carve something in stone, carve that. Because what it means is when Matthew, guided by the Holy Spirit, says that this verse in Isaiah is a prophecy about Christ, then it is. The Holy Spirit has declared it thus. And this is just one of many similar instances in the Bible where this, this principle applies. And it's a very important one. Because there's no new scripture being written. So there are no new interpretations of existing scripture. And failure to understand this has resulted in countless cults and bad decisions. You can't just take any sentence out of the Bible and decide that it's a prophecy about me, right? It, unless the Bible someplace says so, it's not true. That's the principle. But what I want to ask, let's put that controversy aside and say, well, isn't there a principle also that if the Holy Spirit can reveal a different understanding of a verse in the Bible, then can't, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, a, an event today be seen in two ways? Certainly, what we see here in, in Isaiah, an event 400 years later, uh, an, an event being witnessed and described by one guy, 400 years later, being applied to a different event by another guy, and the things match up pretty well, doesn't that imply a tremendous amount of control over the initial event, the observer of the initial event, and the second event, and the writer describing that event? You would almost have to be um, all-powerful and omnipotent to cause such a thing to happen. And if there are two ways to look at an ancient event, isn't it reasonable to believe that there are two ways to look at modern events? For example, if you were to lose your job or to contract COVID, maybe what looks to you like a difficult trial can also be the will and purpose of God working in a way to benefit you and his kingdom. I know a story of a, a truck that became disabled broken down. It was full of fish outside of an Indian orphanage full of hungry children. It could just be a natural cause. A broken down truck due to uh, poor maintenance and really bad roads. Or was it the act of a merciful and faithful God providing for those children? True story. This verse in 2 Corinthians says exactly this. It says, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. How many of you have some trial going on that you would call light and momentary? 
Now, we tend to think our trials are eternal and horrible. But Paul doesn't make exceptions. He calls all of your trials light and momentary. But look at the word he uses for glory. It's weight. There's a weight of glory. Our trials are nothing. What is done for Christ and for his kingdom is eternal and weighty and substantial. Friends, brothers and sisters, we need to understand this. We need to understand and to prepare ourselves and to pray and train ourselves to see with spiritual eyes, to see the things that are unseeable. G.K. Chesterton has put it this way, and I have to think of Kyle when I read this. <clears throat> he says, an adventure is an inconvenience seen with proper eyes. And an inconvenience is an adventure seen with improper eyes. So I hope Kyle sees what he's going through today as an adventure. G.K. Chesterton is a great writer. Um, I was recently reminded of, of his wit and his way with words while teaching in our Sunday school, our seeds ministry. And if you really want to get a good foundation for your faith, step up and help in the seeds because you'll have a blast and you'll learn things. Recently when I was in Sunday school, in the lesson I was teaching, our children, our precious little children, these babes in Christ, were presented with another controversy. Can you believe it in Sunday school? They were faced with this question. Is the Bible true, or is it just a book full of fairy tales? Who would ask a little child that? And I was intrigued as I was going through the lesson. I'm saying, I can't ask this of little kids. But then within the, within the lesson, they presented the answer given by G.K. Chesterton to this very question, to which he replied, yes. And then he went on to clarify. And I was so intrigued, I downloaded G.K. Chesterton's uh, book. It's called Orthodoxy. And I actually have a slide of it up there. Um, in which he states his position, and I've really enjoyed reading it. And my crude summary of G.K. Chesterton's stand on this question is this. <clears throat> the problem is with the question. Because it makes an assumption about what is true. The world's view of truth is limited by what they can see. What is true is that the world consists of things seen and unseen, natural and supernatural. In the real world, that's God's world, axe heads can float, donkeys can talk, columns of fire and smoke can lead people through the wilderness. Water can become wine, and a virgin can give birth. The things of this world, the events, 
the objects, the people, have two natures. There is a natural, physical existence that obeys the laws of physics, and there is a spiritual nature that is subject to the laws of the spirit and of its creator. You know, that almost that same phrase just occurs to me is in the Constitution of the United States. Of the laws of nature and of nature's creator. By the way, the spiritual elements last a lot longer. And they are weighty. Christians, believers in Jesus Christ, we must train ourselves to see with spiritual eyes. And I believe if I could just get that right, if I could develop that ability, it would revolutionize my life. If you go to the next slide, these are just a quick summary of things that it occurs to me that I get wrong most of the time. If I could just see every obstacle as a mountain, yes, but one made by God who himself is the source of my help and strength, as we read in Psalm 121. If I could see every false idol and vain treasure as a hindrance to my growth and to my own good, as we read of the rich young ruler in Matthew 19. If I could see every disease and handicap as an opportunity for the Son of God to be glorified, as we read in John 9, if I could see every passerby as someone being led away to death and stumbling towards slaughter, as they're described in Proverbs 24:11, if I could see his power instead of my weakness, as we read in 2 Corinthians 12.10, if I could see with those kind of eyes, oh, what a Christmas every day would be. Every day filled with adventure. Like unwrapping the greatest gift as God reveals his amazing purpose in every detail. And this is the hope that's expressed in this first advent. For after hundreds of years of apparent silence, God the Father, the creator of heaven and earth, engages with humanity again, keeping the promises he had made in exactly the way he had always said he would. And it begins with an improbable, hard to believe series of events events that could not be imagined by mankind, events spotlighted by a star in the sky, heralded by a choir of heavenly beings, attended by kings and shepherds, in a barn, and having something to do with an unwed mother. All of this is proof that the God of this universe is not limited by what we can see and comprehend. What a great hope. 
Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your amazing gift, this wonderful present that we get to open every day of your word, the wonderful treasures that are in there, the enlightenment, the wisdom, the knowledge, the point of view. From it, we can learn to see with the eyes of faith, with spiritual eyes, to see you, to look up to the hills and see an army of angels when we need it. To look into every situation and see the potential to glorify your son. We ask that you especially open our eyes during this season as we approach Christmas when you opened the eyes of the whole world and began and showed us your deliverance. We thank you for being here for this wonderful treasure, this indescribable gift. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.